On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking about cannabis because there are two new studies out that have some very interesting results as far as what cannabis does or doesn't do. The first one, done right here in Hamilton, a local lab at McMaster, and the other one, which gives us some interesting, maybe concerning numbers about pregnant women and how many more of them are now smoking cannabis, believing that it's completely safe. Is it? Well... Take a listen. Uh, we're also going to be chatting about human rights. What exactly is a human right? Because there's a very strange case in British Columbia right now in front of the Human Rights Tribunal. What counts as a human right? It's a it's a fascinating discussion. We're going to be chatting about a treasure hunt that is coming to Hamilton. You could win a hundred thousand. There's a company that wants to give a hundred thousand dollars to somebody who could find buried treasure, although it's not really buried. But anyway, you get the idea. Here in the city, and we're also going to chat about the origin of the names of soda pops that you drink. Where do the names of these pops come from and what do they mean? We'll talk about all that. Stick around. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Over the last year or so, maybe a little more than that, I've had my first guest on a few times to talk about issues around the legalization of cannabis. Obviously, it's been an issue that is relevant to everybody here in the country now that it has become, the drug has become legal. And to understand... This guest, he's not a seller of cannabis. He doesn't own a store that sells cannabis. He's not an advocate for or against. He's not a critic. He is a doctor who is studying cannabis and its effects on people. His name is Dr. James McKillop. He heads up the Michael G. DeGroote Center for Medicinal Cannabis Research Research at McMaster University. And some new information came out this week from his lab, which made me want to have him back on. It is research that apparently shows those who have been using or who have used cannabis recently show a higher likelihood for memory problems and decreased reaction time. Is it a big deal? Well, let me bring him on. Dr. McKillop, how are you today, sir? I'm very well. Good to talk to you, Scott. You as well. Always glad to have you back. Uh, we know that there are impacts of people ingesting cannabis. If there wasn't, nobody would ever take the stuff. Obviously, there is something that it's going to do to people. But are these kind of results, are these effects what you had expected? Well, yes and no. Uh, We did this study because people have been interested in the effects of cannabis on cognition for a while, but it's been a very murky area of the field. There have been a fair number of studies, and some studies show that it's associated with uh, negative consequences. Other studies don't show any effect at all. Um, And unfortunately, a lot of the previous studies have been relatively small, which can create unreliable findings. And we were fortunate to have a relatively large data set of over a 1,000 people. And so we were really able to uh, get some greater clarity than we had before. And, and the results in some ways converged with what we thought would be the case, and in other ways were different. How significant are the results in, in, in terms of memory loss and, and reaction time and things? Are we talking a massive difference, or are we talking a minuscule difference? What, what are we saying? We're not. So uh, one of the pieces of good news from the study, in my opinion, is that uh, although we detected some uh, negative cognitive consequences, the effects in general were relatively small. So uh, it's relatively easy to identify statistically significant findings when you have a large sample. Um, But what's more important in some cases is how big the effect is. And in general, these were relatively subtle effects. Now, that doesn't mean they're not important, because in some contexts, uh, 
split-second reaction time matters a great deal. Like what? Uh, well, for example, uh, in uh, an emergency when, for example, a crime is being committed and police are on the scene, uh, optimal cognitive performance is essential. Or uh, for other first responders uh, during a fire or during a medical emergency, uh, it's critical that people be at, at their sharpest. Uh, the same is true for more mundane situations like a school bus driver. Um, so I think that there are some situations where the stakes are high or the cognitive demands are high that we want people to be at their highest performance. But in many other situations, uh, we don't have to have our absolute highest performance. And it may be that most people uh, who, uh, in our study, would have recently used cannabis might not have noticed a very substantial effect. So we saw an effect. It wasn't a very large one, uh, which are two sides of the coin. One of the things, as I understand it, and please correct me if, if I'm saying something wrong here, but one of the, the differences between, because we always hear the comparisons between booze and pot, and booze is legal, so therefore, you know, why, why not pot? And one of the differences, as I understand it, is that booze m- metabolizes pretty quickly and leaves your system, whereas the effects of cannabis can stay around for longer, Correct. That's exactly right. So uh, if you have a heavy night of drinking uh, and a hangover the next day, certainly there are going to be some negative cognitive consequences. But by the day after that, alcohol has almost entirely left your system, uh, the vast majority at least has, and the likelihood of experiencing ongoing cognitive effects is pretty limited. On the other hand, cannabis uh, is a totally different, or the, the psychoactive ingredient in cannabis is a totally different one from alcohol, and it's absorbed into your fat cells uh, and then continues to circulate in your bloodstream because it leaches back out over time, over a much longer duration than alcohol. And as a result, uh, its effects can be more significant over time or can have a, a longer, what we would consider, window of effect. And that's what we saw in this study. It was people who still had... THC in their urine who showed the significant, uh, significantly lower performance on uh, these two cognitive tasks. But if you had had that alcohol that you talked about, even hours later, if you still were intoxicated, you would feel something. You would feel the effects of that. Is it? Would you still feel it days later if you had had if you were a heavy user of cannabis and then took a number of days off and it was still in your system? Would you still feel anything? No, no. It would be unlikely that you would have any kind of Awareness. Uh, awareness of it. That's exactly right. And so these effects, subtle as they may be, do seem to persist even past the point of uh, the, the period of intoxication uh, into daily life. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Talking with Dr. James McKillop, who heads up the Michael G. DeGroote Center for Medicinal Cannabis Research about some new information, a new study they've done that shows that use of cannabis, recent use, can lead to some memory impairment, memory loss perhaps, and some decreased reaction time. And just before the break, we were talking about, Doctor, that uh, even if you... If you'd had a bunch of booze before, if you'd had a big night of drinking, you would feel the effects of that. You wouldn't necessarily notice that because the fact that the chemicals in in cannabis stick in your system for a while. If what you're saying is right, and I have no reason to believe that it is, and I'm sure it is, could this not create a bunch of liability issues then? Because if I suddenly am in a car accident or if I'm a cop who's involved in a in a shooting or something else, 
I could be, could I not be tested and found that even though I felt a hundred percent, if five days before, or if I've been a user, that there could still be THC in my system and I could still be technically affected by that? Yeah, I think Scott, you raised some really important questions because, um, although we think of alcohol and cannabis as being similar as recreational intoxicating drugs and now both being legal, they are quite different, and the fact that we don't have uh, tests that are highly time-sensitive uh, is a real issue. Uh, in addition to the fact that, as you allude to, these findings suggest that, uh, regardless, uh, simply the presence of THC indicating uh, relatively recent use, not, not imminent use, is associated with cognitive consequences. So I think that this is going to be the kind of question that will come up over and over again. In a court case. Um, in, in court cases and in um, other settings like, uh, you know, HR uh, settings, human resources settings, where there may be certain requirements that uh, in different uh, professions people uh, abstain for periods of time before being on duty, for example, or being... Um, uh, in, in uh, active work. So, uh, unfortunately, I think that one of the limitations of this study was that the uh, our uh, measurement of recent use was pretty coarse. It was just whether or not the drug was uh, in the person's urine. It could have been relatively recent. It could have been uh, a week ago or two weeks ago for a very heavy user um, because cannabis really does stick around in the system. Um, so there's going to need to be more work that really teases out these timelines because it's an important uh, aspect of um, public safety, understanding uh, the duration of impairment. And it's going to require, I would think, if they don't already have it, there's going to have to be a lot of businesses and a lot of companies and employers that better lock down their policies if they're not already locked down, if this is true. Uh, let me jump to something else really quickly because there was a second study not done by you but that I was reading about out of California. Now, it's California, but pot is not legal there at this point, so I, probably the numbers would be the same or higher here because it is now legal. It says from 2009 to 2017, so not quite a decade, pot use was up from 17% to 25% of pregnant women who somehow now believe that it is safe, and among daily users um, for pregnant women in that same time frame, from 15% up to 21%. Is are, do we have information that the the that cannabis has been overstated as a damaging element for pregnant women, or are they taking some chances here, based on a belief, I guess, that if the government says it's okay, it must be safe, and they're taking chances with their babies? I, I think that they're taking chances, Scott. I think that um, unfortunately. There are contradictory messages out there about uh, the safety of using cannabis during pregnancy. And uh, what we know is that although it's not as significant a uh, teratogen or a harmful agent as alcohol, uh, nonetheless, uh, cannabis exposure in utero does seem to be harmful for the developing fetus, which shouldn't surprise anyone. But unfortunately, there are some studies that have shown that if you, uh, it, for example, in Colorado, when dispensaries were contacted uh, by researchers uh, in the guise of being pregnant uh, women, 
70% of dispensaries actually recommended cannabis for morning sickness. And so there are uh, active proponents of cannabis use during pregnancy, which I think is really a, uh, a dangerous recommendation and one that is um, in contrast to a lot of the evidence that suggests that cannabis can be harmful. Um, the fact that these rates are going up is very troubling to me. I know that there's work happening locally to see uh, if in Ontario there are similar kinds of recommendations that are going out. But unfortunately, I think this highlights one of the, um, the common myths about cannabis, that it's natural, uh, it's not like alcohol or uh, tobacco, um, and may be safer for mums to use during pregnancy. Well, and, if the government just, says it's safe, it must be safe. Well, I, you know, I, I think, unfortunately, um, the, the government says it's legal. <laughs> the government doesn't say it's safe, <laughs> but people are conflating legal with safe too often, I think. And the reality is alcohol is legal, doesn't mean it's safe. Tobacco is legal, doesn't mean it's safe. And I, I'm not an opponent of cannabis, but I think we have to be cautious, uh, or at least mindful of the risks when it comes to these uh, recreational substances. And so I, I, I'm, I'm troubled by those results. Dr. James McKillop, always love having you on. Thanks for doing this again today. Great to talk to you, Scott. Have a great afternoon. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let me ask you a very broad question for a moment. I mean, it's kind of, it's, it's, it's a foundational question in our society, I would think. And that is, what is a human right? We like to believe, we like to say, we like to act on the fact that we in Canada have human rights. We follow human rights. What's a human right? What's under that umbrella? Life? Yeah, absolutely. I think everybody would agree that the right to life is a human right. Freedom? I would think that most people would say yes. In some countries, they would argue against that, but I think most people would say freedom is a human right. Security of your person, safety, yeah, I would think so. I would think most people would categorize that. There's a bunch of other things that fall into the list. I believe Amnesty International lists 29 different things that they would list as human rights. How about the Brazilian wax of a transgender woman's testicles? Hmm. A little more complicated. This is a story. Now, you're, you're going to think I'm being silly. I'm not being silly. This is a real case that is being fought in front of the BC Human Rights Tribunal right now. Should a salon owner be forced to do work, do a kind of work that she feels uncomfortable with and untrained to do because of gender identity that someone says, I am this, therefore you should be helping me, working for me, or else it is a violation of human rights. It, it starts to walk into some really interesting, really complicated areas. Let me bring in lawyer John Pincus of Semfira Tumarkin. Uh, John, how are you today? Good. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm, I'm betting you didn't expect to be talking about this today. No, I didn't, but uh, <laughs> that's the nature of the job. You never know. Well, uh, let, me, let me go back for a second, because Rex Murphy was a great journalist, great commentator, was writing about this in the National Post the other day, and he argued that this kind of thing, this idea, this case, is making a mockery of human rights. So before we get into that, let's back up for a second. In your mind, I, I listed a couple things. What is a human right? What's, what's, the, what's the baseline for what becomes a human right? In the context of transgender identity, gender expression, it's the right to not be disadvantaged. It's the right not to be treated differently as a direct result 
of your gender identity or uh, or, or you know transgenderism. So um, it's the right to be free from stereotypes, the right to uh, have equal uh, equal uh, rights to employment, housing, facilities, uh, memberships in various associations, and to not be deliberately excluded from these things as a result of those immutable characteristics they have. And if we broaden that even beyond transgenderism, just in public in general, many of those things, I guess it would be the exact same description, that you are entitled to have freedoms and not to be violated against or be have your color or your race or your religion or anything else get in your way or stand between you and whatever else. Right. So we've determined a list of, of what we call grounds under the code. So there are certain things you can be treated differently for, for a variety of reasons that aren't human rights violations at all. But we've, we've determined that certain things, which include gender identity, which include religion, age, uh, sex, that are fundamental to a person's identity, uh, that you can't be treated differently as a result. These things are, are kind of uh, sacred in a sense, that you, you, you cannot uh, punish someone for having these characteristics because of their race, because of their, uh, in this case, their gender identity. So here's where it starts to get interesting because when you start to put these things into real life scenarios, uh, it's not always as easy as when you write it down with the, you know, the theory behind these kind of things. So uh, like I'm an employer, for example, there are clear things that I cannot do. I can't force my employer employees to be put into a position of danger, for example. I, I, I don't think you can, right? That's a human right that they be safe on the job. Well, that's more of, I would say, an occupational health and safety issue. But yes, you, you, I mean, you can't do that as an employer. You have to provide a safe work environment. That's not strictly a, a human rights code issue per se. But sure, as, a, as an employer, you have to keep your employees safe. Could I force them to do something that flies directly into the face of their beliefs? Well, that depends. If it's, it's what we call a bona fide occupational requirement, if it's something that is truly necessary for the job and, and, and there's no way that you can accommodate them, then in certain cases, uh, someone who takes a, a particular job has to be expected to do that, even if it does conflict with their beliefs. So it's, it's not always as straightforward as saying, I have this belief, this job requires me to do something that's against this belief, therefore, this is human rights. Okay, interesting. So if you, if you go into a particular job expecting or knowing that there is going to be a, a, a part of that job that will go against your beliefs, that's on you if you choose to take that job. Assuming it's, it's yes. Yeah, assuming, assuming it's, it's known up front. It's obvious. And assuming it's a, it's a real, actual, fundamental requirement of the job that's not just being capriciously added by the employer, but it's it's what the job is about, then sure. I mean, for, so the example, you know, the big example we always use is, is uh, firefighters, right? That's the one that went to the Supreme Court. If you're, if if you are confined to a you know a wheelchair uh, and you want to be a firefighter, uh, there may not be a way that an employer can accommodate you to do that job, and that's a bona fide occupational requirement that you be able to uh, move quickly and be able to you know perhaps climb ladders and, and etc. So that's not a violation of your human right that they don't give you that job. Exactly, because you you just may not be able to do it. All right. And I mean, and there are many other ones. If you're an animal rights activist and apply for a job at a slaughterhouse and say, I, well, I'm not going to kill any animals, that would seem to, again, same idea. If That's you're going to apply, example. if yes. you're going to apply for a job that by definition goes against your beliefs, that's on you. If you take a job that doesn't have the obvious violation and they try to get you to do it, what happens? 
if if you take a job that's not an obvious violation and they try to get you to do it, then it could be discrimination. And that would be in, in stark contrast to the example that you gave, which I think is a, is a great example of you know, someone who doesn't believe in, in uh, factory farming and goes and works at basically a factory farm uh, is very different than someone who goes to work at an office and is told, okay, you have to dress like this, and you know, or you have to wear high heels to work, or you know, etc. Where it's clearly not a fundamental part of the job; it's just more of a preference of the employer, and that could be uh, because they don't have the defense. That could be amount to discrimination. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Talking about human rights, what is a human right, and what happens when one person's belief that something that is their right conflicts with something that is someone else's right. It's it's a story that comes from the BC Human Rights Tribunal. It's a very complicated one. It's a very unusual one. It involves a transgender person who wants to have a particular salon service done, a Brazilian wax, and the owner of the salon says, no, I'm not comfortable doing that. I'm not trained to do that. My husband doesn't want me handling men or male parts at least. Uh, therefore, I don't want to do this. It's led to a, as I say, a complaint to the Human Rights Tribunal, and we're all we're talking. It's all about rights. John Pincus is from Samira to uh, Samira Tumarkin Law Firm, who is joining us talking about this. Um, so we were talking about an employer and an employee situation, and I think that one probably. Am I right, John? That would be a reasonably easy one because you're in a. Um, an accepted relationship together. You're working together. You're supposedly working towards the same end. That that should be easier than some something like this. That is a a business and a client that may have a difference of opinion. Well, it, the same rules really apply. The, the the question is going to be: Is there a connection between? the adverse treatment that that person is receiving, whether it's an employee or, or in this case, a, a customer, and have they met the undue hardship standard? Have, have they established that it's just not reasonable uh, to ask them to do this? So it's, it's really the same analysis. It's, it's a, a different category, but I, I would look at them from a, a similar viewpoint. So what becomes then of, cause we get, we end up, you know, it seems like modern times, our problems are way more complicated than they were. Maybe, maybe they're not, but they certainly seem like this. Um, we had a case recently of, now again, this is an employer situation, but of a firefighter who was working in the bush fighting forest fires, who took a complaint to the human rights commission because he said, I was not provided with vegan meals and I'm a vegan and that was unreasonable. Um, I, again, a little bit different, but how how do we balance these things when the when the employer says unreasonable to consider or to expect us to do that? Firefighter says, "Well, I can't work under these circumstances." Then, how do we balance these conflicting interests? Well, I think in that case, at least from my point of view, it's at least a little bit easier to, for the the applicant to establish that there's a connection between what they're complaining of and, and what's not happening. In that case, they're saying, I need vegan food, and they refuse to provide that to me, and they easily could have done it, and they didn't. Here, in in this BC case, with respect to uh, this uh, transgender uh, claim of discrimination, uh, the issue is that they wanted to, someone who's, who's coming to a uh, place of business uh, who's, who has uh, male genitalia wants to be treated the same way as someone um, as female genitalia. And the person who is, who is saying that they can't, um, can't provide that service is just saying, I'm, I'm just not able to, to um, you know, 
to handle someone with that kind of biology. So that's a little bit different, I think, because uh, there, I think here in the, in the BC case, that person has to first establish that it's actually related to their, um, to their identity as, as a transgender person, as the reason why they were denied that service. Uh, and I think in this case, there's at least a conceivable argument uh, from the business that, no, this, this was strictly uh, a function of the reality of providing a service to someone who, you know, who has that kind of body. Um, and uh, so I think the undue hardship standard um, is going to be, for, you know, for one thing, the undue hardship standard is going to be, I think, more e- easier to see the, the business uh, overcoming that in the BC case. And I also think that it may be more difficult for the applicant in the BC case to establish a nexus of discrimination. Uh, but uh, like I said, the analysis is the same. Is there a link? Is, is there a failure to accommodate? And is there a bona fide uh, reason for not being able to accommodate that person to provide what they're asking for. Well, and all you say is accurate and, and fair and, and right, obviously, but it gets a little more nuanced because what happens, leave aside for a second the fact that the the person who is the running the salon says, I'm not trained to do this properly because mm-hmm. apparently there are different... Tr- trainings for dip for men and for women. I, I don't, I don't know my way around that line of bit work, but anyway, apparently it's different. So there is, there are training differences, but what if she, the salon, salon owner had simply said, you know what? My religion doesn't permit me as a woman to be handling the parts of any male genitalia that is not my husband because we look and we see the the rights that you have in our society include religion, but include gender. What happens now when one person's right to be treated as a gender they identify as runs into someone else's right that says, well, I'm entitled to my freedom of religion and conscience? Well, how, how do you determine who gets the final right? Well, that, that's a very complicated question. Uh, I think that's a difficult question. Uh, to answer, and uh, I, I think that we've recognized as a society that while there is a certain obligation to accommodate, there's only so much of a positive obligation that the government is going to enforce upon people uh, when it uh, when it conflicts uh, with their other rights. And so, I, if you know, if it was a situation like that, um, and someone has a reasonably held uh, religious belief, um, then that, that the, I think the outcome of that wouldn't be as obvious um, as, it, as it may be in, in the current situation. It is. I have so many more things I want to ask about, but sadly we're out of time because it's a fascinating topic. And, and certainly I, I don't think, I mean, this one is unique, but I don't think we're going to hear fewer of these going forward. I think we're going to have more and more human rights tribunal cases. And am I right? Just as we go, I'm over time already. Am I correct? I read something that within, uh, within the last few years anyway, that the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal had never rejected a case. Is that correct? They've never, the, no one who's ever gone there has ever lost. Is that true? Uh, that I can't verify, but what I can tell you is that the Ontario Human Rights Tribunal has seen a huge surge in the number of applications. And uh, at least from the Ontario provincial point of view, uh, there's really, uh, there's nothing stopping someone from bringing a complaint. And, and the, the approach has basically been, if you have, if you believe that you've been discriminated against, you, you will be heard. John Pincus, appreciate your time. Thanks for tonight. My pleasure. That's uh, boy, that's complicated. Go read it. Uh, go read the story. It's really interesting. It may, uh, you will have an opinion by the time you finish reading the story. Let me tell you one way or another, you will have an opinion. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. 
So I was reading a story the other day. It was online. I came upon it about this treasure hunt in Edmonton. And as I'm reading it, it's kind of intriguing because it says that there is this, like a literal treasure hunt with $100,000 worth of loot. I don't know if it's cash or prizes or whatever. We'll find out in a moment. Um, And this is hidden somewhere in the city of Edmonton. And people had found hints or received hints and were trying to figure out the clues and were looking all over the city of Edmonton to try and find this and claim the money. It's, you know, the movie, the Goonies was on the other day. It's kind of like that. It's a real life version of Goonies or Raiders of the Lost Ark minus the monsters and the rolling balls of death. And those I don't think are part of this. Otherwise it's the same kind of thing. Now that said, my initial response was to be suspicious because why in the world would there be a treasure hunt where someone wants to give a hundred thousand dollars away? I'm always suspicious Again, we'll get to that in a moment. Anyway, I'm reading this story and it goes on and then I'm looking some, I follow it up and I go look up another story to read more about it. And I see there are similar treasure hunts in Calgary and Vancouver. And there's ones coming up later this summer in Halifax and Winnipeg. And then down in the States in Austin, Dallas, Houston, and San Antonio, Texas, these things are popping up all over the place. And, and why we're talking about it today and in Hamilton on August 31st, people here are going to be able to buy a map online and then be part of this with a chance to find up to $100,000 somewhere here in town. It is intriguing to say the least. I wanted to bring someone on to talk about this. Uh, his name is Chris Cromwell. He is with Gold Hunt, which is the company behind this. Chris, thanks for doing this today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Really glad to be here. So, okay, fill me in on what I'm missing. Why somebody just wants to give me $100,000 to go out and find it and take your money away? <laughs> You know, it's uh, it's been a really exciting summer for us. We've already been able to give away $300,000 worth of treasure. Um, I mean, it, it all kind of was born of inspiration. We've all dreamed of being a treasure hunter. Uh, a few months ago, we had the idea to put our own treasure hunt on, and we designed it so that it can be uh, a win-win for everybody. Uh, we sell maps on our website, uh, goldhunt.com, and people can get involved and, and really get out there and hunt for $100,000 worth of real gold and silver. So it's not like a cash prize. It's nothing like that. It's real gold and silver. It's, it's really something pretty epic. And it's, and it's absolutely legit. It is absolutely legit. All right. No scam, no trick on someone else. There is real money, real gold at the end of this. It is $100,000 worth of real gold and silver legit. Okay. So, all right, let's walk through this then. So how this works, because uh, I'm, I'm, terribly curious then to understand how this is going to work in Hamilton. Explain to me how this is going to look, What's going to, what this is going to be. Sure. So uh, the way that it works is that uh, you visit our website, you get a map, uh, which gives you access to a series of riddles, clues, poems, and basically a, a treasure map. Uh, what that does is it leads you on a journey throughout the city to discover kind of more clues along the way and basically find uh, at the end of the tunnel, it's a it's a real treasure of a hundred thousand dollars. So it's like it's like human Pokemon. It's it's kind <laughs> of like a hybrid between Pokemon Go and yes. scavenger hunt and Oop. an escape room. It's it's all pretty intense. Uh, it's been really cool to watch it unfold over the last few months. How hard are the clues? Like, is this really difficult to figure out? You know, we, we learned a lot when we did the first round. Uh, we discovered that a lot of people were solving clues from home and posting them in, you know, forums like Facebook groups and Reddit. Uh, and so now we've designed the hunt so that you have to actually go out and collect clues along the way to fill in the blanks of your map. So it's, it really is a treasure hunt. Is it, are the clues all Hamilton-centric? Like, do you have to know the city really well to get them? 
Yeah, one of the big improvements that we made is we started including cultural uh, elements and historical elements that are relative to that city. So if you know the city really well and you're buffed up on your Hamilton history, then you'll be a shoe-in uh, to do really well with this. And maybe it's a bit of a hint, but if you're good at solving riddles, uh, you are definitely uh, up for a challenge this summer. It's going to be a lot of fun. Okay, so... On August 31st, which is the day this is going to happen, someone goes on your website, which by the way, if they want to make a note and go look it up, it's goldhunt.com. Pretty simple, goldhunt.com. They buy a map and what does it cost? Like 50 bucks, 60 bucks, something like that to buy the map to buy your way in? Yeah, so there's two really exciting options. The treasure map is only $50 and the chance to get out there and find 100 grand worth of gold and silver. And there's another option uh, where you can actually collect loot along the way. So we've designed the hunt so that not only is there a winner of $100,000, but we've also got people who are going to collect things like tablets, smartphones, gaming systems, bikes, four-wheelers, even brand-new cars along the way. In addition to the 100000 In addition to the $100,000, that's right. All right. And so August 31st at what, right at midnight, or is there a time that it's going to start? Yeah, we're, we're thinking probably early afternoon. Uh, the first round we released at midnight and we got kind of mixed results with that. So uh, I think we're going to make this a little more accessible for people to get access during the day, probably around 2 p.m. Uh, Eastern time. And does everybody have to gather in one spot? Is there a giant takeoff spot like at the beginning of the Amazing Race or do you just go from wherever you are? Well, you can go from wherever you are. Uh, the map has everything you need to get started, but if you'd like to get a head start, you can join us at our launch party as early as 9 a.m., and we'll be able to give you an extra bonus clue and probably some swag as well. Okay, so um, the are you looking for an actual treasure chest? Well, yes. Uh, really? Not like the one that's depicted in our uh, videos that you'll see online. Uh, it's a small wooden chest uh, that's no bigger than, you know, 10 inches in any direction. And inside of that chest is a small certificate. Uh, and that certificate has some steps to go through. And uh, once you've found that last clue, you'll you'll probably jump up and down and, and scream like, like a maniac. People so, will know. People will know. People, you will know. If you get there, you'll know. Do you have to dig for it? Like, is this an excavation thing? Mm, great question. So we learned from round one that digging is bad and <laughs> you should protect the infrastructure. And so the treasure is above ground, which makes it... Above ground? We think, oh. we think, we think this is going to be a challenge. People are really going to have to think this through. Uh, it's not buried at all, and so no shovels required, uh, no kind of permits required to go dig for this thing. You can find it above ground, which is really cool. I, I actually love that. I knew the answer to that ahead of time, by the way. i got to give that away, because I, there was a, a story online that I've pulled up in front of me here that was about one you did in Vancouver, and there's a line in the story, I guess this was the first one that you did. And, you know, again, as you say, you live and you learn. Uh, the line is, yet after seven days of hunting for the treasure, locals are claiming this hunt is causing complete chaos throughout the city as people continue <laughs> to dig holes all over the place. Uh, I, you know, I can understand, you know, again, you, you try and figure out how to make it better. And people were what, running around with shovels, digging up people's gardens and stuff to find it. Yeah, well, it's, uh, you know, I, I think it was maybe maybe a little bit of clickbait for that title, but uh, we've seen the area that uh, the treasure was found, and it's, it's really not as bad as it's made out to be. Uh, we did learn, though, that people get a little frantic uh, in search of $100,000. I believe uh, that. Very little sleep and very little food, so uh, we've, we made this a little more accessible so people don't have to go 
uh, anywhere on private property. It's all above ground. Uh, you'll be able to find it 24 hours a day. There's no, uh, you know, it's not going to be hidden anywhere that's uh, dangerous or anything like that. So, so it's really been a great improvement, I think. Well, and okay, and again, I mean, like, it is fair to say that you, once you do this once or twice, you learn from things that can work better. And so this one says that it took, they were still hunting after seven days. That, I mean, that sounds like an arduous thing to find it. Has that been changed? Like, will, will people find it in less, or are you going to have to clear out a whole week of holidays to be involved in this? You know, it's, it's really hard to say the Edmonton treasure that we did on round one was found in less than 20 hours. And as a result, I had to eat my shirt because I'm, I, I got a creative mouth sometimes. And I just decided to say, well, if it's found in 24 hours, I'll eat my shirt. So that's already happened. And, uh, did you really eat it? I really did. Uh, not, I mean, not the whole thing, but uh, yeah, there definitely was a piece of fabric that I had to eat. Uh, that being said, uh, Calgary only took five days and Vancouver was found in less than seven days. The interesting thing about Vancouver is that the person who bought their map actually found the treasure within less than 18 hours after buying their map. So, I mean... Oh, so they weren't hunting for seven days. They, they came yeah. in late. That's right. So it, it really, I guess, Hamilton, I'm challenging you. Like, what do you got? Can you find it in less than 20 hours? Let's see. Who is your audience for this? I mean, it's, it sounds like it's, it's a younger audience, but is that who's doing this in these other places? Oh, you know, I gotta say, I was really surprised. We have a variety of people getting involved. You've got your, you know, hardcore treasure hunters, your geocaching type uh, outdoor adventure sort of people. But then you've also got uh, families that are bringing small children with them and a lot of like just older people that are out for like a nice day in the park to go explore the city. It's been incredible to create something that gathers such a wide range of people to be involved and we've made it accessible for every one of those groups of people. So whether you're, you know, a diehard treasure hunter who wants to get out there and really uh, get into the adventure side of it, it's for you. Uh, but if you've got maybe small children that you want to bring with you for the day, it's for you too. So it's it's pretty cool to see this come come together. Chris, can I ask a silly question? Uh, you mentioned the diehard treasure hunters. Are there diehard treasure hunters out there? Buddy, I'm telling you, I met some interesting people on day one. And I'm telling you, there are people out there who had not slept for 16 hours, who had been researching the city and canvassing the internet, looking for clues and uh, really going deep, deep into the <laughs> into the research side of it. Uh, they tell me, you know, oh, we've been geocaching for 10 years and we've done 5,000 geocaches and all this stuff. And I'm thinking, like, you're hardcore. Like, I, I mean, I've done some with my family, but these people are really into the whole treasure scene. So I, I love it. I think it's so cool to see such an eclectic group of people come together and and work together to find this treasure. Have you ever had anybody who is, because obviously to, to set this up, you have to have somebody or some people from your company that are going around putting these clues in place and everything else. You ever had anyone stopped and say, what are you doing? Uh, absolutely. Um, we've had a few encounters, uh, you know, where people are like, so what are you doing out here? Uh, we actually, in the first round, we had to change the location of the treasure because it was uh, it was just a little too close for our comfort, uh, and there's really only one person who knows where the treasure is, and that person has uh, chosen to remain anonymous for several reasons. But uh, you know, it's a, a very intimate team here at Gold Hunt. We're less than twelve people. Uh, we started as a group of you know six people that came together to to make this happen, and I'm just happy that I was part of that conversation. Got asked to be the spokesperson. So. 
Th- that raises another interesting question. And right off the beginning, when I said, is this legit? It's not a scam. It's not something else like that. Where, where's the money behind this? Like, wh- what's, the, what's the business model that would make you want to give $100,000 to somebody? How does it work from your perspective? Yeah, from, well, from my perspective, it's, it's pretty straightforward. Uh, the business model is that, you know, we're selling treasure maps, right? So uh, for us to, you know, break even in each city, it's only a few thousand maps. Uh, we are really uh, trying to create something fun and exciting for Canadians that allows them to spend more time with their family, explore their city, and have a blast looking for some money that could change their life. Uh, as far as your first question about where does the money come from, uh, it's all privately funded. There's no, there are no outside investors. This is all just a group of friends, investors, and business colleagues that came together to make this thing a reality. And uh, we've just been really fortunate that round one was a success, and now we're into round two and coming up for round three here in Hamilton, Winnipeg, and. Well, as I say, reading this story that I, you know, I was sort of poking the fun at the the fact that it was causing complete chaos throughout the city. If it was causing <laughs> complete chaos throughout the city, that implies that there were more than one or two people doing it, which is a good thing. And which would suggest yeah, I mean, that if a bunch of people were doing it the first time, they're probably coming back for a second time. You know, there uh, the first round we had over 8,000 people. Really? All three cities. Yeah. Um, 8,000 I mean, in each of those cities? Uh, no, no, sorry. Oh, between all total. Three. Okay. So, um, and I mean, for those of you who are out there wanting to do the math on that, you can. Uh, we, you know, we were selling maps that uh, in the first round it was uh, 25 and 45. Uh, and then we decided to add like giving away cars and giving away a whole bunch of like extra stuff. So we changed our, our model a little bit. But I think, uh, yeah, I think we're, we're really ramping up to have several thousand more people uh, go at it for round two and three. So it's, it's pretty exciting to, to see it all come together. And, and we're just pumped to be in Hamilton. And I grew up in Ontario, so I'm, I'm pumped to get back home and uh, go visit some of my friends in, uh, in GTA and go down to Niagara Falls for a bit. And yeah, it's a beautiful area down there in Hamilton. Of course, I read a story a little while ago. Uh, I don't know if it's true or not, but I think it was about a former Japanese soldier from World War II who had been hidden on an island. He thought the war was still going on. He was about 80 years old now and had no idea. No one had told him the war had ended. When someone finally finds the treasure chest, is there any kind of alert to people that the thing has been found, or are we going to have people two months from now still wandering the city looking for this? No, it'll it'll be. <laughs> Does a within, light go off or something? Within or? minutes, uh, within minutes, we'll know that it's been found. And how do, how does everyone else who's out there looking find it? Do they get a text message or something saying, "Oh, too bad, so sad." Uh, well, not quite, but something to that effect. Yeah, it's, uh, we have a membership dashboard. So, in order to get your map, uh, you're basically getting a, a a dashboard on our website, and you will get instant updates for uh, treasures or loot that is found along the way. So you know that if someone finds 100K, you're not going to spend the next four days or five days out there searching uh, in vain. It is uh, it is a really compelling, really interesting idea. The website is goldhunt.com. People can go and take a look and decide if they want to take part. And uh, as Chris said, um, you know, even if you're not one of those those uh, what's that? What's that British show that's on Netflix? The uh, where they have the the metal detector, the detectorists. Even if you're not one of the detectorists which is, by the way, a great show. Go watch it on Netflix. Um, you can maybe go out with the family or do something and have a good day with this. Uh, Chris, really appreciate you taking the time to talk about this today. Thanks so much. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Can't wait to come to Hamilton. Uh, goldhunt.com. It, it sounds like a really interesting idea. I, I kind of hope, based on that story, again, it was a story out of Vancouver where it says that the there was complete chaos around the city as people were looking. I, look, I hope we have chaos around the city. Wouldn't that be fun? 
if there were suddenly thousands and thousands of people racing around Hamilton, not racing, you know, don't want to race, don't want to be breaking the law, but within the law, racing around the city to try and find this stuff, it'll be kind of fun. Uh, goldhunt.com if you want to take a look. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. You know, I was going through something today and I, I was reading something and it was about Coca-Cola. And it was something about the history. I don't know how I got onto it. It's one of those rabbit holes that one thing led to another, led to another. And suddenly I'm reading the story about Coca-Cola. And I thought, you know, it, yeah, that's a really interesting story of why Coca-Cola is called Coca-Cola. And then I got thinking, what about all the other names of soda pop? Well, you know what? Turns out there are so many sodas, pop, you know, I, we call it pop here in Canada. Let's not call it soda. So many stories behind the names of pop that I'd never heard of before. And I'm guessing many of you hadn't, and they're great stories. So I thought we would do that for the next few minutes here. Ben and I are going to chat about, break down the origins of the names, why these different pops are called what they are. And let's start with Coca-Cola. Now, Ben, do you know why Coca-Cola is called Coca-Cola? Not really, but I'm going to take a shot in the dark. Shoot. I once heard that they used to put cocaine in Coca-Cola. True. So is that why it's called That is part of it. Yes. So... First of all, yes, once upon a time when it first started, and I'm, there's a bunch of sites and a bunch of places that refer to this, uh, the original ingredients, the original Coca-Cola was not Coca-Cola. It was called Pemberton's French Wine Coca. That was the original name way, 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 way back. And Pemberton was John Pemberton, a doctor who was an Atlanta pharmacist. Coca-Cola is still based in Atlanta. So it was an Atlanta pharmacist named Dr. John Pemberton who created this mixture for, quote, extreme mental exertion. And yes, it included cocaine and it included alcohol. Now, interestingly, by the way, I think anyway, uh, we think now of cocaine. Oh, cocaine. Why would you put... Well, once upon... If you paid very close attention in many of the Sherlock Holmes stories, for example, the very end, the last line in the Hound of the Baskervilles, if you look up that one, the last line is Sherlock Holmes turning and saying, Watson, the needle. And he's not talking about an allergy shot. Once upon a time, cocaine was seen as something different than we see it as. Sherlock Holmes was using this stuff. I mean, he was a fictional character, but you know what I'm getting at. Anyway, so Coca-Cola, yes, it used to have cocaine. It used to have, well, originally it started with, it was coca leaf, cola nut, and damiana, a fragrant flower used in making a stimulating tea. And then it had co- it had cocaine and it had alcohol in it. In 1886, temperance laws went into effect in Atlanta. He had to change the formula. So the alcohol was gone. Still had the cocaine though which remained until 1905, but the coca is, the cola is cola and the coca is, yes, you're right, from cocaine, so. So you also said cola nut, that's where the cola comes from? Yep, Pepsi cola, okay, so why Pepsi then? Why Pepsi cola? Where does that name come from? The name of someone? Well, you would, no, good guess. Uh, This was also made by a pharmacist. And by the way, that's going to be a recurring theme. We think now of pop as being bad for you. Don't drink too much. It's loaded with sugar. It's not good for you. Most of the pops that are out there, at least that were around once upon a time, were invented by pharmacists or doctors. So just keep that in mind. But uh, North Carolina pharmacist Caleb Bradham originally started selling this as Brad's drink, it was called. Pepsi was originally called Brad's drink. 
And it was similar to Coca-Cola. Also had cocaine in it, apparently, at the beginning. But also had a separate, a separate, uh, another additional, since I can't say the word, an additional ingredient, pepsin, which is a digestive enzyme that was in his original formula. Pepsin, Pepsi. That's where that one comes from. So Pepsi-Cola was then changed to Pep-Cola. Pep-Cola, I've heard of. which Which then became, so Brad's drink became... Pep-Cola, which became Pepsi-Cola in 1903. Well, of course, that was my second option. That was your second option. Dr. Pepper. Any idea where the name for Dr. Pepper comes from? Did they ever put like a hot pepper or a pepper of sorts inside of it and it was created by a doctor or a Dr. Pepper? So the great story about Dr. Pepper, which... um, makes this such a ridiculous thing is that a, even the Dr. Pepper Museum doesn't know apparently why it was called Dr. Pepper. <laughs> <laughs> there is nobody named Dr. Pepper in the mix anywhere and there's no evidence of pepper. It was made by a guy named Charles Alderton who was, guess what he was? A pharmacist. A pharmacist who was a pharmacist. Uh, The drink was invented in Waco, Texas in 1885. It started as Dr. Pepper's phosphorates, not phosphorates, but phosphorates. It was a play on the word, not much of a play on the word. Uh, (laughs) It was touted as a health tonic, also had pepsin like Pepsi-Cola, but the thing that separated it, do you know what the thing is? You've drank, you've tried Dr. Pepper before. I've also tried recreating it from mixing all of the other pops together. But do you know what the thing is that originally, anyway, now it's, I'm sure it's not what they use today, but what Dr. Pepper has that unique twist taste that is not quite a cola. It's got something else. What was that? And I'll give you a hint. It was from a fruit. Was it a cherry? No, no, but think if you were a senior, what fruit might you eat? A prune? Prune juice was what made Dr. Pepper unique flavored. Now, again, I don't know that prune flavored flavoring, because I'm sure there's no juice anymore. (laughs) Um, I'm not sure if it's still prune that makes it different, but that's the original. That was, it was prunes that were put in there. So Dr. Pepper was the drink. If you were needing to have something to taste it good and made you, you know, go. (laughs) <laughs> From both ends. I wonder if maybe like using the pepper was to cover up the fact that it was using prunes, kind of like how uh, they plum cannot sauce explain. Is really they cannot explain. No one can seem to explain where the Dr. Pepper comes from. Oh, one other thing to notice about Dr. Pepper. If you ever notice about Tim Hortons, as a sidetrack, you ever notice there's no apostrophe in Hortons? It should be because it's Tim Hortons. It's his place. It's possessive. It should be Tim Horton apostrophe S, but there isn't one. You know why? Because there's multiple Tim Hortons and they've been lying to us this whole time? (laughs) Because French language laws, French sign laws would have required that they would have to write something different to accommodate French grammar. So it's just easier to remove the the apostrophe, which is why the apostrophe left Tim Hortons once upon a time. Well, I mentioned that because Dr. Pepper, the proper spelling of the name Dr. Pepper, there is no period after the R in doctor. Really? It's just D-R Pepper. So just next time you happen to write down Dr. Pepper, remember that one. Uh, here's one. Have you ever, have you ever consumed Verner's? No. Verner's ginger ale? Oh, it's wonderful. 
Verner's ginger ale is amazing. We can't even, I don't think we can get it in Canada. So you have to find it in the States somewhere. Verner's is amazing. I've never been amazing. to the States, so I can't try that. You've never, you still have never been across the border? Still. You haven't taken me across? Yet? All right. It's coming up. Although, yeah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> the roads, the show's going on the road. Uh, to one the of States. these days. Uh, this one goes way, way, way back. This is apparently the oldest American pop flavor. Not the oldest pop flavor, the oldest American pop flavor. It goes back to the American Civil War when Detroit's James Verner, whose job was? Pharmacist. Pharmacist, of course, uh, just took ginger ale syrup that he'd left in an oak cask and didn't distill it into booze, which is maybe the next step if he left it a little while longer, but he loved the flavor when he took it out of the oak cask and it was ginger ale with an oaky cask flavor that went with it. Um, 1865, he started making it when the war ended and it became very, very popular. And there you go, that's where Verner's comes from. So it's the name of another pharmacist. That's four pops, four pharmacists. The medical community is going to be furious at the pharmacists for doing what they've done to make us all drink pop. Uh, Hires root beer. Everyone's had Hires root beer, right? I don't know if it's around as much these days, but I, I'm assuming it is. I'm assuming we still have Hires root beer. This one is, uh, this one's pretty easy. Philadelphia's Charles E. Hires, that was his name, hence the name. Uh, while he was on his honeymoon in 1875, he was served a root tea. That's what they called it. And he loved it so much that he bought a bunch of the tea packets and stuff, packaged it up in tea packets and people could take it home to brew their own drinks but eventually he decided that people would buy more of it if he made it himself and they didn't have to do all the work. And he made what became root beer, even though there's no beer in it. Uh, any guess what Charles E. Hire's occupation was? Of course, he was a pharmacist, like all of them. Okay, here is one that, another mystery one, 7-Up. Why is 7-Up called 7-Up? Well, I'll give you the answer ahead of time uh, in so far as nobody seems to be able to agree on why 7-Up is called 7-Up. There's about nine different explanations and nine different possibilities, but no one can seem to agree. But the idea is uh, when 7-Up was first brewed or made or mixed or whatever it is back in 1920, it was supposed to be, well, it was unlike all the other ones. It was called 7-Up. The reasons they give, let me, first of all, it was made by Charles Leeper Grigg. Unclear what Charles Leeper Grigg's profession is, but I'm guessing I could take it, a wild stab at it. He's probably a pharmacist. It, it was a pharmacist. His first soda. So the original name of this was the Bib Label Lithiated Lemon Lime Soda. Now that is a drink I want to try. That is a mouthful. A lithiated referred to the lithium that was in the formula. It had lithium in it to just, you know, chill you out a little bit, I guess. So eat a battery. It was a mood stabilizing drug. Yeah. You're, you're having a, you're having a mood stabilizing drink. It's to chill you right out. Uh, that became seven up in 1936. So the various explanations for why seven up is called seven up. One is because there are seven ingredients, sugar, carbonated water, essence of lemon and lime oils, citric acid, sodium citrate, and lithium citrate. And the up is the lithium mood lift. Uh, there's a possibility that it was sold in seven ounce bottles, hence the seven up. Some say that he saw a cow with a brand on it with a number seven and was inspired, although that seems a little odd. Uh, someone said that he thought of the title while rooting for sevens during a game of crap, so like seven up. 
And the um, the other one is that 7-Up is a coded reference to the lithium it contained, which has an atomic mass of around 7. That seems a little too deep. Little too deep for pop. Anyway. Fanta. You've consumed Fanta, yes, I'm I assuming. Have. Why would a beverage be called Fanta? Any guesses? I've often gone with the whole belief that it rhymes with manta, like a manta ray, and that there's some sort of nautical connection. Well, you're completely wrong. Surprise, However, there's, it's closer to the Nazi connection. Yes. All huh. right. So Fanta was created in Germany in 1940 because when the war started in the things started happening, Coca-Cola, which was the big drink apparently over there, the syrup for Coca-Cola, they couldn't get it into Germany anymore because of embargoes and everything else. So now Germany is without their beverage. So a guy over there decided to create his own, Max Keith was his name. He was the head of the German Coca-Cola company, had to develop a new drink to keep his company in business. And he could only use ingredients that were found in Germany was the explanation. So he made a a fruit, not flute flavored, a fruit flavored drink with the ingredients he was able to scrounge up, which was apple fiber left over from cider presses and whey from cheese factories, which obviously is not how it looks or tastes today. (laughs) That sounds disgusting. Yum. That's how whey residue and apple fiber. Mmm. Throwing a little of Dr. Pepper's prune juice and you've got yourself (laughs) an evening. Uh, Anyway. Um, so yeah, they, and the fruit, whatever fruit they could get was whatever fruits they could find at the time in Germany. It was an ever changing thing. Like you weren't with, with original Fanta, you weren't buying it knowing, oh, I'm going to have this. I know what Fanta is. No, every day it was a new taste sensation if you were buying it. Anyway, how does the name come up? He asked employees to use their imagination for what we could call this new beverage. And the German word for imagination is fantasy. Huh. Fanta. See, and one of the employees says, well, why don't we call it Fanta? And there is the name of where Fanta comes from. So, See, I was expecting them to be like, how does it taste? Fantastic. Well, that could have been. And when I say it's closer to the Nazis, just so you're wondering, you could go ahead and still buy Fanta. It's not a Nazi beverage. It just happened to be the war was the reason why it was created. Canada Dry. Why is Canada Dry called Canada Dry? It was created during Prohibition in Canada? That's a very good guess. It's a very good guess. Not quite right, but a lot of people have guessed that. Canada Dry Ginger Ale started in 1904 as Pale Ginger Ale, capital P, Pale Ginger Ale. Uh, John J. McLaughlin, who owned a sparkling water plant in Canada, was seeing that lots of other people were creating a syrupy, really sweet ginger ale And he didn't like that much, so he made one that was less sweet, which was more dry. Hence, Canada Dry is the... Uh Uh-huh. Genius. Uh, Fresca. This one's not even exciting. Fresca is the Spanish word for fresh. Ah, that's cheating. Stupid, right? Although, fun fact, Fresca isn't... You'll see lemons on the thing. It's actually grapefruit. It is grapefruit. Yes, that's true. Orange Crush. I love this one. Orange Crush. Why is it called Orange Crush? Because it tastes like orange and it crushes everything else. (laughs) Almost. Uh, Orange Crush is called Orange Crush, if I can find it here now, because, uh, first of all, it was made by, what was the occupation of the man who made it? Uh, Neil C. Ward. He was a pharmacist. He was a pharmacist. He was. 
Uh, it was originally called Ward's Orange Crush because back in 1911, when he started doing this, orange pulp was part of the original formula. And it gets crushed. And it got crushed to get into the drink. So hence, Orange Crush. There is the explanation for that one. I'm going to keep saying it's because it crushed the competition. Uh, Schweppes ginger ale. What is the origin of Schweppes? Uh, I'm guessing it was... Schweppes is totally a last name. It has to have been made by a whoever Schweppes. Swiss-born watchmaker, amateur scientist, uh, Jacob Schweppes, was introduced apparently to the process of carbonating water by Joseph Priestley in 1770. Schweppes is the original pop. Schweppes was a pop before any other pop came along. So there you go. First of all, 1770. And he was introduced to the process that you could carbonate water. And then if you laid the bottles on their side and kept the cork moist, the bottle would hold the carbonation. And originally the first soft drink that he ever created was when he added quinine or quinine. I'm not sure how to pronounce that to carbonated water and created tonic water, which they still produce. Schweppes is still the tonic water company for many people. If you're going to have a gin and tonic or something anyway, uh, went from there and he was the guy that started pop and took it to London for the world's fair in 1851. And the rest of the world caught on to pop from that point. But yeah, Schweppes is the name of the guy who started it. All right. A couple more quickly. Tab. You ever tried Tab? I can't say I've ever heard of Tab. So Tab was big in the 70s and 80s. It was a response to RC Cola. RC Cola was like the third cola company after Coke and Pepsi. And RC Cola never, I don't know whatever happened to it. Anyway, RC Cola though was a bit of a trailblazer and they made the first diet cola. Tab was the answer to the diet cola. And it became like the, the girl's drink, the woman's drink back when the advertising was out. Anyway, Tab, T-A-B, is actually spelled capital T, lower A, capital B, for no good reason. Just because. Because marketing. Because marketing. The story is that it's owned by Coca-Cola. They created it. The company created it. They couldn't figure out what name they wanted to use. They used their IBM 1401 computer to generate a list of over 185,000 four-letter words with one vowel. Now, why that was important is unclear. I'd hate to be the guy who had to go searching through those and go, oh, that's the one. That's the one. 92,006. So now that's 185,000 four-letter words. Tab has three letters. Well, the one they chose was T-A-B-B. And they chose it because now women could keep tabs on their weight with this diet cola, which would fit into the advertising thing. You can keep tabs on your weight. So that's that's that one. Uh, Last one. Mountain Dew. You know why Mountain Dew is called Mountain Dew? Because they go up to the peaks of the highest mountain, <laughs> extract, <laughs> extract the, the dew. morning dew. Yes, they have. And bring it down and shove uh, almost, it full of sugar. Almost. Uh, the, uh, the name Mountain Dew is actually slang for moonshine. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. That was, if you drink Mountain Dew down in the South, you're drinking moonshine. And Mountain Dew was originally designed, it was built, it was made, it was created to be a mixer for bourbon. Huh. That would explain why it tastes so good. You were, they never had anticipated, apparently the folks who made it, they never had anticipated people would drink it by itself. It was entirely designed to go with bourbon. Huh. And so then all of a sudden people decided they liked the 
super high caffeinated, super high sugar. I mean, you've drank Mountain Dew before. Oh, it's one of my favorite drinks. You drink that stuff, have three bottles of that and you need an insulin shot. Oh yeah. I mean, it is the sugariest, sweetest, most high caffeine concoction. It's delicious, but you don't want to overdo it on Mountain Dew unless it's got the bourbon, I guess. I've never, I've never tried it with bourbon before. I've never mixed it with anything. Maybe I should. They all work really well. Fun fact, do you know why it's called a soft drink? Because there's no alcohol? Exactly. So Mountain Dew, in a way. It's kind of an oxymoron. Mountain don't. (laughs) (laughs) The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.